Good morning, and once again, thank you for tuning in again. As always, I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. And from that website, you can also see our times of services, important announcements about the way that we are meeting, and um, you can click on our live stream services and so forth, uh, as well as catch uh, past sermons and classes. All right, today we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is lesson number 12, and we'll be covering chapters 11 and 12. Recall from last week that a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, now this was a Gentile who feared God, who was described as being a just man, a, a devout man, as, as one who was generous to the poor, as one who had a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. And we mentioned what high praise that was for a Gentile. And he was a man who prayed continually to God. It says that his good works rose up as a memorial before God, and his prayers were heard. An angel appeared and told him everything he needed to do in order to be saved, right? <laughs> No, you remember, don't you? The angel <clears throat> told him to send for Peter, and Peter would tell him what he needed to do. Cornelius does as he was instructed. Uh, meanwhile, Peter has a vision, a vision to teach him that what God had cleansed, he was no longer to consider unclean. As instructed, uh, Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, a, a Gentile, he, he goes inside with uncircumcised men, is the charge later. And he keeps company with them, and he eats with them. And finally, he baptizes them. Now, an important point to make that I failed to make last week was Peter's question in Acts chapter 10 and verse 47. He asked, can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now, why would Peter ask that question? Uh, who is he talking to when he asks, can anyone forbid water? He's, he's talking to those brethren who came with him. If, if anyone was going to forbid water, it was going to be those Jews. Um, and there's a reason for that. We'll get to it in a minute. Who is he talking about when he continues that these should not be baptized? In other words, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? Who's the these? He's talking about Cornelius and the other Gentiles that were with him. What is the significance of the question? Peter knew that baptism was the point that these Gentiles would be added to the kingdom, the point at which they would be saved. Not at the point where they feared God and were devout 
Not at the point where they were generous to the poor and filled with good works. Not at the point where they prayed to God continually or, or even the point where the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they spoke in tongues. But at the point of baptism, Peter is essentially asking these Jewish brethren, you know, based on what you have seen and heard, can we forbid it? Is there any doubt that these should not be baptized also, that they should be added to the kingdom? But because of all that, <clears throat> Peter has some explaining to do here in chapter 11 when, when he gets back to Jerusalem. We, we spent some time last week talking about why that would be a problem. Yes, they were now followers of Christ and no longer subject to the old law with its sacrifices and dietary restrictions and circumcision and feast days and such. But, but that old law was so ingrained into their religious psyche that it parts of it were difficult for them to let go. I mean, in their way of thinking, yes, Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He, he came and he died for their sins to, to cleanse them, but the Jews were God's chosen people. Salvation was of the Jews. The lesson that Peter was to learn in chapter 10 and, and that the rest of the apostles would learn here in chapter 11 was that God had granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. In today's lesson, covering chapters 11 and 12, there in chapter 11, we'll see uh, Peter giving a defense to the apostles and brethren in Jerusalem. You know, a defense about his interaction with this Gentile, Cornelius. We're going to see Barnabas and Saul coming together as a team in Antioch. Uh, that place where disciples were first called Christians. We're going to hear of Agabus, a, a man who was prophesying of a great famine, and we're going to hear what the Christians in Antioch and other places did about that. In chapter 12, we're going to see King Herod's violence against the church, including the death of one of the apostles. Peter himself is imprisoned and, and then freed by an angel, and that's followed by Herod's violent death and then setting the stage for the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 11. And I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3. This is, uh, you know, Peter returning to Jerusalem. This kind of sets the stage here. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You know, note the exclamation point there at the end of that sentence. Uh, this was unheard of. Peter, Peter should have known better. They demanded an explanation here. And they get one. Peter goes on to explain all that had happened to him from, from the vision of the great sheet there in verse 5 to the proclamation of the voice from heaven in verse 9 saying, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Or some translations say unclean. What, what God has cleansed you must not call unclean. 
He told of the Spirit instructing him to go with these men to Caesarea, there in verse 12. He tells of the six brethren, those Jewish Christians from Joppa, that accompanied him to the home of Cornelius. He tells of Cornelius's response there in verse 13 about seeing an angel telling him to send for Peter in Joppa and that Peter would tell him words in verse 14 by which he and his household could be saved. Peter recounted how the Holy Spirit fell upon them in verse 15, as on us at the beginning, Peter says. And in verse 17, Peter essentially says, if God has accepted them, and if the Holy Spirit has given them the same gift as he gave us, who am I to withstand God? After having heard all that, it says in verse 18 that the room fell silent. Now, I've heard people make a big deal about the fact that Peter spoke and then everyone fell silent. As if Peter, exercising some sort of preeminence over the rest of the apostles, had the final word on the matter. And I would disagree greatly with that interpretation. It's clear to me that they fell silent, not because Peter had spoken, but because of what Peter had witnessed. Remember, this idea that, that salvation was for the Gentiles was a, a hard pill to swallow for the Jews, but the evidence was so overwhelming. What could they say? And for those that might have thought that Peter had lost his mind, there was no arguing that six additional brethren were witnesses to all of this. And, and by the way, verse 12 Verse 12 indicates that those six witnesses were right there at Peter's side here in chapter 11. You know, so he says, these six brethren accompanied me. Uh, the room fell silent at, at, as this great realization comes upon them. And, and they only break the silence to state the obvious in verse 18. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, as obvious as this may have been right here in the moment, we do see this problem pop up time and again in the New Testament. There continued to be Jews that would teach that Gentiles had to obey at least portions of the old law in order to be saved. Such Jews were called Judaizers. Uh, in fact, Acts chapter 15 deals with the issue of whether or not a, a Gentile a Gentile men had to be circumcised in order to be Christians. The verdict, uh, they do not. <laughs> Something that occurred to me as I studied chapters 10 and 11 was that, that Peter had to reason his way through all of this. Um, not just Peter, but the, the brethren, the apostles that were there that had heard this. Wouldn't it have been easier for that voice from heaven to just say to Peter that salvation has come to the Gentiles and to just send him to the home of Cornelius to baptize him? Why go through all of this with the, the vision of the sheet letting down and do not call unclean what God has called clean and Holy Spirit baptism with speaking in tongues? 
What was that all about? Why go through all of that? Well, because there was an important lesson in all of this. A, a lesson not only for Peter and the brethren that were with him, but for the apostles and, and the brethren back in Jerusalem, and for every person since who has heard about and read about these events. What is the lesson? What was the lesson? That, that we should be able to take the information that God has given us and reason together what the will of God is. I'm amazed at the wisdom of God and all that. I'm reminded of that old saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. If that voice from heaven had simply given Peter all the answers up front, then problem solved for a day, for a time. But Peter and, and, and the rest of the apostles, as, as well as us today, would not have learned a valuable lesson about the interpretation of the will of God. Certain commands were given. He was told to go with these Gentile men, fearing nothing, doubting nothing. Uh, examples were given that the lowering of the sheet in a vision was a vivid picture of clean versus unclean, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles as on the apostles at the beginning. You know, the command that what I've called clean don't consider unclean. And, and from all of that, Peter came to the inescapable conclusion, not just Peter, but the brethren also and the apostles that heard this this account. They come to this inescapable conclusion. No one should forbid water or baptism for the Gentiles that they may be saved. Today we can reason together in much the same way, but we have to consider all of what God has said about a particular subject and, and not just sort of pick and choose what we want, just to sort of support the way we've always believed something. <clears throat> from uh, verses 19 through 26, uh, there's more talk about those that had scattered after the death of Stephen and the persecution that followed, uh, similar to what we saw back in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 1. Uh, recall again the words of Jesus when he said that they would be witnesses of him in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, here in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we see, uh, we saw that scattering throughout Judea and Samaria. And, and back here in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we're setting the stage for the fulfillment of that last one, to the ends of the earth. And, and right here in verse 19, it mentions um, people being scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And uh, let me just pull up a map of that for you guys to kind of look at. Okay, so when we're talking about Phoenicia, we're talking about the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Tyre and Sidon would have been uh, the major cities of Phoenicia. And when we talk about Cyprus, here is this, this island of Cyprus out here in the Mediterranean. 
And when they mention um, Cyrene, this is a city over here in northern Africa. And it's not labeled here, but right there on that tip is the city of Cyrene. It actually lies within the region known as Libya today, the, the country. And, uh, of course, it mentions Antioch. Now, there were two Antiochs. There was Antioch of Pisidia over here that you see the arrow going around. And then there was Antioch of Syria, and that's the one that we're talking about. And uh, I think that covers all of the nations that we just mentioned. <clears throat> uh, note from uh, verse 19 that the scattered Christian Jews were still only preaching to the Jews. They're, they're still avoiding Gentiles because, again, old habits die hard. And verse 21 says that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. There's that word turned again. We've talked about that in previous lessons, how, how accepting the gospel message involves action on our part. It involves a turning away from who we were and turning toward what God wants us to be. The, the inescapable conclusion as we reason this together is that one cannot simply believe while at the same time refusing to turn, refusing to change, and, and then expect to be pleasing to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 22 says that when the church in Jerusalem heard of this, <clears throat> they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, uh, Barnabas was not one of the original 12 apostles, so he was not able to pass gifts of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, but he could provide a great deal of encouragement and instruction to these new groups of Christians that were popping up. In fact, verse 23 says that he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Verse 24 gives us a good indication of why Barnabas was selected to go, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And the result, a great many people were added to the Lord. <clears throat> At some point, we see from verse 25 that Barnabas departs for Tarsus to find Saul. It could be that Barnabas recognized that the harvest of both Jews and Gentiles was was great. It was plentiful in this area. And, and knowing that Saul had been commissioned by Christ himself as a messenger to the Gentiles, this, uh, this was a great opportunity for Saul. And, and once he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And verse 26 says that he spent a whole year there and taught a great many people. Uh, this is probably the first time that we have assemblies of believers consisting of a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And of course, this is also the passage that uses the word Christians for the first time to describe the followers of Christ. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Very familiar passage to most of us. Uh, verses 27 through 30 contain an ominous prophecy from a Christian by the name of Agabus, saying that there would be a great famine throughout all the world. And interestingly enough, verse 28 
says that this happened during the days of Claudius Caesar. Historians tell us that Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 to 54 AD and uh, that there were four distinct famines that occurred in various regions throughout the Roman Empire during his reign. In verse 29, we, we see a determination among Christians to, to send relief to the brethren in Judea, uh, the brethren that were affected by this famine. Uh, how did they do that? How did they collect this relief and then get it in the hands of those who needed it? Did they uh, set up some sort of a board there in Antioch and, and appoint members uh, of that board as representatives from other congregations? Did that board oversee the collection of funds that could be sent to the needy in Judea? Well, uh, sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Uh, did, did they send out a message to all the churches stating, send your money to our elders here in Antioch, and, and our elders will oversee the distribution of these funds to the needy in Judea? Well, you know, that Sounds like it would work pretty well too, don't you think? But, but as, <clears throat> as good as those ideas may seem to us, that's not the way they did it. Uh, certainly they could have done it that way had the, the Holy Spirit directed them to. You know, if the Holy Spirit felt that that was the best way to do it, uh, but they didn't. Uh, what did they do? Individual disciples gave each according to their ability, and they sent the money to the elders in Judea, and verse 30 says, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. In other words, the money went directly to where the need was. Uh, in fact, throughout the rest of Acts, and, and detailed in many of the letters of the New Testament, money was collected for needy saints, and it was always sent directly from the church collecting the funds to the church that was in need. There was never some other organization, call them an institutional board or an eldership or, or some other mechanism, some other organization. Uh, there was never some other organization that served as a middleman between local churches and the work to be done. If that's the way it was done in the New Testament, under the leadership of inspired men, why change it today? Why is it that we think that we know better? Uh, the opening verses of Acts 12 uh, describe a King Herod who reached out his hand, uh, it says here, to harass some from the church. The, the Greek word for harass here means to oppress, afflict, cause harm, or mistreat. Your translation may use some of those terms. The New American Standard Version says that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, the title Herod was a lot like the title Caesar. Uh, just as there were lots of Caesars, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and so forth, there were lots of Herods. Uh, in what is called the Herodian dynasty. And my understanding is that this particular Herod was King Herod Agrippa I. Anyway, one grim result of this violence against the church was the execution of James the Apostle with 
the sword, it says in verse 2, as well as the arrest of Peter there in verse 3. And and I would be remiss in this lesson if I didn't mention something about verse 4 here. Uh, If you have an older King James Version of the Bible, the passage will read this way. Um, As a matter of fact, let me just uh, switch over to the King James Version real quick. Here we go, okay? And uh, when he, that is Herod, had apprehended him, that is Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions, and we don't use that word much today, four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, the Greek word that is translated as Easter here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 of the King James Version, the the older King James Version, the Greek word is Pascha. Uh, that is the word for Passover. Uh, that, that same word, Pascha, is used about 29 times in the New Testament. And every single time, except right here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, um, it's translated as Passover, the way it should be. But for some reason, the translators of the King James Version decided to insert the word Easter here instead of Passover. Uh, All the other translations uh, always translate the Greek word Pascha as Passover. So it's an unfortunate translation that you you need to be aware of. Uh, It's outside the scope of this lesson to talk about Easter, but it it does have roots in paganism. Now, Now, Uh, Some of my listeners may take offense to that, but I would say don't take my word for it. Uh, Don't even take someone else's word for it. If you want to know the truth, research it yourself. The truth is there. All right, let me switch back over to uh, my New King James Version. And so we see here that it says, So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. But something interesting happens. Um, Let's read about that, where where Peter is put in prison and then freed from prison. Uh, Rather lengthy reading, but but stay with me on this. Uh, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now, just kind of keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out 
and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to him he, himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together, praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Um, and in verse 18, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. You know, um, the most interesting thing about all this, to me anyway, uh, is not that Peter escaped. I mean, even though he was bound with two chains between two soldiers, even though there were guards at the door to his cell, guards at the main entrance of the prison, even though there were four squads of soldiers assigned to guard him, and, and the angel assist him in getting past all that. I mean, I guess it isn't that interesting to me because I can easily see that happening. In fact, we've, we've seen that sort of thing before, haven't we? The most interesting thing to me was the group of Christians at the home of John Mark in verse 12. It says that they were gathered together praying. Well, what were they praying about? Well, uh, verse 5 uh, gives us a clue, at least a part of what they were praying about. The constant prayer was offered to God for him, that is Peter, by the church. Uh, does prayer work? I've heard it said that there's power in prayer, not because prayer by itself has power, but because of the power of the one we are praying to. And I would say amen to that. Someone else once said, that uh, that uh, that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. But uh, but what I find most interesting about all this is their reaction when Peter comes knocking on the door. Uh, Luke identifies a woman named Rhoda as the one who comes to the door there in verse thirteen. When she sees that it's Peter, she's just beside herself with excitement. So much so that verse 14 says she forgets to open the door and let him in. And I guess the door was locked. But, but she runs excitedly back into the house and tells everyone that it's Peter. And, and, and what is their reaction there in verse 15? They, they thought she'd lost her mind. <laughs> um, it says, they said to her, you are beside yourself. That's the New King James Version. But 
the English Standard Version says what I just said, you're out of your mind. After she insisted, someone suggested that maybe she, what she saw was Peter's angel. Now, I don't really know what to make of that, but keep in mind that Peter is still standing at the door. I uh, can't help but wonder what's going through his mind during all of this. Uh, could he hear the commotion going on inside? Well, verse 16 says that he continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Um, you know, it's been said that if you're going to have a prayer meeting and pray for rain, you better bring an umbrella. Okay, that's, that's faith. Uh, James had just been killed by Herod, and now he had Peter in custody. And I don't think they knew anything else to do but to petition the God of heaven on Peter's behalf. Now, I don't know what they were expecting from this continual vigil of prayer, but they definitely weren't expecting Peter to just walk right up and knock on the door. <laughs> um, he motions them in verse 17 to keep silent. He tells them all that had happened and instructs them to go and tell James. Now, this would be James, the Lord's brother. Uh, we know that James the Apostle has, has been slain by Herod. To tell James, the Lord's brother, and the rest of the brethren. So then verses 20 through 23 talk about Herod's death. Uh, almost an insignificant footnote in the annals of history, except perhaps because of the way he died. But verse 22 indicates that, that he allowed himself to be puffed up with pride as the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And uh, verse 23, uh, it says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. I can, I can sure think of a lot of ways that I'd rather die than, than being eaten by worms. And chapter 12 comes to a close by mentioning the return of, of Saul and Barnabas from Jerusalem back to Antioch, and, and they brought John Mark with them. Uh, chapter 13 begins Paul's missionary journeys. Recall the, um, from, from, from way back that, that we said that the book of Acts could be roughly divided almost in half between just two of the apostles, Peter and Paul with the first 12 chapters being mainly about Peter and the remaining uh, chapters uh, being main, uh, mainly about Paul. And so we are out of time, and that brings this quarter's lessons, 1 through 12, to a close. Uh, next week, Lord willing, Bruce Higdon will be filling in for me with a review of the first 12 chapters of Acts and as sort of a lead-in to his class on 1 Corinthians. He'll be using 1 Corinthians as kind of a way to describe Paul's missionary journeys, and that's really what the rest of Acts is about. And, and I, for one, look forward to that study. Thank you.